so this week I googled um, the richest person in the world and none of you came up I did have a relative on the list actually his name is Theo Albrecht it's the German pronunciation Theo Albrecht Jr. he's the son of Karl Albrecht who was one of the brothers who started Aldi you, you know about Aldi he's worth about 23 billion um, he never calls he never writes you know how you know how these guys are once they make it it's like they won't talk to their relatives anymore so yeah but Google tells me you already know who's the richest guy in the world who wrong wrong Jeff Bezos Jeff Bezos 131 billion dollars now Bezos has come out of nowhere granted uh, he wasn't on the list 10 years ago um, he's he's come out of nowhere you know what he does he runs he runs Amazon now Bill Gates is number two Oh, okay I saw this okay thank you Ettore for clearing up this point very vital point okay Bezos has lost some money recently and Bill Gates has ascended to the to the top of the list thank you Ettore I always want to make sure to get things as accurate as possible you know what he did he started Microsoft the fourth guy is also an American Warren Buffett um, he's just an investor who's made a potload of money he's uh, worth 83 billion the 12th 13th and 14th richest people in the world are from a small town in my home state anybody can anybody guess who that is Ethereum knows who that is the Walton the children of the Waltons right they're worth 20 billion apiece now wouldn't that be an awful burden for your parents to leave you 20 billion dollars I mean wouldn't that be a burden it would be a burden what do you how can you can't spend this much money uh, you can't even give away this much money you can't do it um, but I thought that was also interesting so when I googled get rich I got 50 million uh, results okay and it's all about making money every one of them was about making money I didn't look at all of them but I looked at a handful and they were about making money the world's definition of being rich it always is about money wealth property assets so let me ask you how do you define being rich how do you define it God says about people who spend their lives in the pursuit of earthly riches you know what he says Luke chapter 12 you remember the guy that was building the barns and hoarding up? You remember? What did God say about him? Anybody remember? He said, you're a fool. God says you're, God said it. God said, you're a fool for living your life for that and storing up on the earth. He says, you're a fool. You're not rich toward God, right? This is what God says. So we can Google what it means to be rich and as always the world gives us the wrong answer God says you need to be rich toward God and in the things of God 
You know what he told the rich young ruler that ran up to Jesus, wanted to be a follower? Jesus said, sell all you got and you come and follow me. Now, why couldn't the guy do that? Why would Jesus even say that? Do I have to sell everything I have to be a follower of Jesus? Now, of course, Jesus looks into the man's heart, right? And he sees the idolatry there. The man loves his money. He loves his money. And he can't give it up. You know, the text says he went away grieved because he couldn't give it up. The text says, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Which begs the question, why do so many Christians want to be rich? If God says it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God, we're going to look at a few more verses here. God warns us about being rich in the things of the world. Why do so many professed Christians want it. Why is there a whole, you know, false gospel out there called the prosperity gospel? It's men and women and so-called preachers who don't ever actually read their Bibles. Do you remember what the Holy Spirit said in the book of James? You have lived luxuriously upon the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. And here's the passage I wanted to, to share with you, Paul, writing to Timothy. In chapter 6, those who want to get rich, what? You know this text. It's a famous text. Fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin. Right? I guess I'm glad that Theo never calls. I don't want any of his money. This scares me to death. It gets worse. Listen to what God says about being rich. It plunges men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. Now we've, we've talked a whole lot about it this semester about wandering away from the faith. Here's one way to do it. Love money. Love prosperity. Love comfort. Love ease. Love it. Put, set your heart on those things and see how long you follow Jesus. I'm dead serious. Jesus is not about being comfortable. Right? He continues. They have wandered away and pierced themselves with many a pang. Listen to this. Listen to what God says. What does he say? Some of you probably know what he says. He finishes up by saying, flee from these things, you man of God. Flee from wealth. Now, God may bless you, right? But don't you pursue it. Don't let that be, you know, the core instinct of your heart and your mind. I'm pursuing worldly uh, wealth. There can't be a stronger warning than this. Paul says, flee these things. Flee those desires. If God wants to bless you, he can do it. You don't have to set your heart and mind on it, right? You don't have to give your life's energy for it. Back to the guy in Luke chapter 12, and I'll get to the text in a minute. God says, every man who lays up treasure for himself is a fool. Jesus says, don't waste your life worrying about and pursuing earthly wealth. Why does he say that to the believer? Well, there's a myriad reasons. <laughs> but one is, your father knows what you need. The problem is, some of you don't believe your father knows what you need. And some of you probably don't trust that God will give you what you need. Right? What does God say about all of this? 
in context. What are we called to do? Seek ye first, what was it? Oh, a healthy stock portfolio. Wait, that's not it. A pile of cash in the bank. Wait, that's not it. A beautiful home. No, that's not it. What does he say? Seek ye first what? You know, the kingdom of God. God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. This is what God says. I'm not saying this. God is saying this to you. You young people, will you seek first the kingdom of God? Or is your career more important? I'm just asking you, man. And it's not to say you can't have a great career and honor God in it. But I'm saying... Do you really love God first or the career first? Do you really love the money the career will bring first or do you love God first? Man, that's an important question. That's a huge question. That is a huge question. You remember in Luke 12, here's what God says. <laughs> Sell your possessions and give. Make for yourselves purses which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Did you hear it? God says unfailing treasure. It's the best investment. What does God say elsewhere? It's a hundredfold return. Okay, some of you smart people, what is a hundredfold return? What's the percentage on that, Rohan? <laughs> this guy's amazing. <laughs> I never can catch him flat-footed. 10,000% return! 10,000%. This is what God says. You earn when you invest in the kingdom. And when God says it, it's guaranteed. No, no human being can guarantee you a 10,000% return. God says, I will. So what is Jesus saying when he says sell your possessions and give? It's a call to simplicity. That's what it is. It's not a call to, to poverty. It's a call to simplicity. It's a call to give as big as you dare. It's a call to true wealth. It's a call to investing in the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6 again. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share and store up the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. Google is all wrong. You know, when I Google the richest person in the world, I should be on the list. Because I feel like the, rich, I, I feel like the richest person in the world. I do. I, some of you can probably share a similar testimony. I do. I feel that way. And I know I am. And Paul's going to say it to us tonight. I not only know it theologically and scripturally, spiritually, experientially. I know it all of those ways. But I feel rich. My son of the king. Right? You know the old story. Who has access to the king? Not very many people. But a son or daughter, they can always go in. Right? It's an amazing thing. So tonight, <clears throat> we will hear from the Apostle Paul. He understood about true riches. By the world's standards, he was a pauper. He did not have anything. He made tents in, or mended tents in his spare time to make ends meet. But he was always talking about how rich he was. Now, 
And if you're investing in the kingdom, you know, <laughs> with a 10,000% return on it, you really almost can't wait to get there. You know, you, you really, really, you know, every time I preach about money, I have to give more money. It's not have to. It's like, I, well, I'm, it's stupid not to. It's, it's like uh, Randy Alcorn says, it's stupid not to invest heavily in the kingdom. He says it's stupid. Now, I know that's inelegant, but it's true. You know, we have to take God's perspective on this. If you don't take God's perspective, that's on you. Paul was always talking about how rich he was. It was in seeking the kingdom of God kind of rich, unfailing treasures in heaven kind of rich. Listen to how Paul talks. He talks about the riches of God's kindness in the believer's life, Romans 2. He talks about the riches of God's glory in the believer's life, Romans 9. He talks about the riches of God's grace in the believer's life, Ephesians 1. He talks about the surpassing riches of God's grace and kindness in the believer's life, Ephesians 2. He talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ in the believer's life now and forever, Ephesians 3. And tonight, we're going to see in verse 27... that we inherit the riches of the glory of Christ who is in us. Seriously? You're more interested in cash? Really? <laughs> okay, if this is still true of you, you've not understood what God has offered you. And I think this is true of the vast majority of professing Christians throughout the world. It's like, it's always like well, I hear what God says, but it never permeates. It never changes the way I do business tomorrow, right? I mean, with some it does, but it seems like the vast majority, it's, it's like Muzak. It doesn't affect how we live. Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 6.10. He says, I have nothing. You already know what's going to happen. What I'm going to say, yet I what? I possess what? All things, all things that matter belong to Paul. He's a pauper. He mends tents in his spare time so he can preach. He doesn't have anything, and yet he has everything. This is huge, beloved. And if you're a Christian tonight, <laughs> you have everything too. It may not feel like you have everything, but I'm going to say, if it doesn't feel like you have everything, you're not thinking deeply enough about it. Because God says, you are a co-heir with His Son. Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett, or we could say Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, they are paupers compared to Paul. And I want to say this, compared to every true believer sitting in this room. They are paupers compared to you. You are co-heir with the Son of God. So, by way of review, before we get into the text, the Holy Spirit has prompted Paul to write this letter because of the false gospels that are being uh, taught in, in the church. The church is possibly leaving, you know, the, the, 
the truth of the biblical gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. There, there were, people were adding things to the gospel, right? Works, legalism, mysticism. And Paul is writing this book. He'll get into it in chapter 2, which we'll be into uh, in the next week or so. He's, he's challenging this Christ plus stuff, which is still very prevalent in the modern so-called modern church. I've made myself clear and I'll continue to make myself clear. It is demonic. It is false. It is another gospel. It is blasphemy. So when a denomination tells you you have to do anything, you must have Christ plus anything else, you know it's demonic. You don't have to go any further. It is demonic. So here, here we go. Verse 25, chapter 1 of Colossians. Chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 25. Paul writes, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. You have one. You have a stewardship, just like Paul, bestowed on me for the benefit, your benefit. Whose benefit? The church's benefit. You have a stewardship, too. You're to benefit the church, right? That I may fully carry out. That's your job, too. You're supposed to carry out uh, the stewardship God's given you. But he talks about his specific gift, the preaching of the word of God. Verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. It's just that, you know, it wasn't revealed in the, all this wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Now it's being revealed. That's what he's saying. Verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's riches. That's why I started the way I started. That's riches. And if you don't understand that's riches and you don't set your heart preeminently on Christ, you've not understood anything about the gospel. I'm just, I'm just telling you, you've not understood it. Because if you really understood it, you would set your heart on him. Yeah, it's nice to have some money in the bank. Great. But you know what? Ultimately, I leave that to the providence of God, right? Yeah, I work. I work for a living. All, most of us work for a living. Some of us get, you know, 23 billion handed to us, but not most, right? Most of us have to work for a living. It's an honorable thing. This is the way God has ordained it. But we don't worship the work. We don't idolate, you know, we don't make the career an idol in our life. It's a means to an end. It's a means to an end. Verse 28. And we proclaim him admonishing, look at that, he warns every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Verse 29. And for this purpose also I labor and strive just like you. Right? You labor and strive according to his power, which mighty works, mightily works within me. We talked about this when we first began the book of Colossians, verse 1 1. Why is Paul an apostle? It's by the will of God. <laughs> right? Why are you a Christian? By the will of God. That's why God invaded Paul's life on the road to Damascus. He was never the same. I, I was reading a theologian this week, and he says, uh, most of you will understand this, I think. He said, I didn't ask Jesus into my heart, which is nowhere in the Bible. You can't find this anywhere in the Bible. Uh, so I don't ever use this kind of language. But he says, I didn't ask Jesus into my heart. He gave me a new one. This is biblical talk, right? This is how the Bible talks. 
it would be good for us to not use language that's not biblical, especially when we're talking about salvation. So, as I'm writing these words, I realize God's done the same thing in our lives. If you're a Christian tonight, the same thing has happened to you. God has invaded your life and He's turned it upside down. And it will never, ever, ever, ever be the same. For those of you who are born again. And God's given you gifts to enable you to fulfill the call He's put on you. As Paul says, to be a minister according to the stewardship of God. You guys know that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's this, this metaphor, right? The human body. It's a metaphor for the, for the church, right? Uh, and just, there are many, many powerful analogies that can be made between the human body and the body of Christ, the church, for instance. What is a rogue, disloyal, disobedient cell called in the human body? It's one of the most feared diseases on the planet. What's it called? A disloyal cell. What's it called? Cancer. Okay? This is a, this is a beautiful analogy, right? <laughs> Someone who claims to be in the body of Christ but is disloyal, is disobedient, refuses to take, you know, proper instructions from the, the head... Uh, yeah, in the human body we call that cancer. It's, it's the beginning of malfunction and disorder and disease. The same is true for someone who claims to be a Christian and in the body of Christ, but they do not serve their function. They are disobedient. Paul says, I'm not disobedient. I, I'm doing what I've been called to do. I have this stewardship before God, and for your benefit, for the benefit of the church, I will carry it out. And then he finishes there in verse 20, 29. He says, I labor and I strive. So I'm going to ask you, what kind of labor and striving do you put in to your worship of God? You say, well, Jim, it's a small church. We don't have a lot of opportunity. But you know what? Um, that's true. But how much effort are you putting into your worship? How much effort are you putting into being prepared for worship, being prepared for Bible study? You know, how much effort are you putting into that? That's a stewardship, too. Really, really, the next breath is a stewardship. Every breath is a stewardship. Every heartbeat is a stewardship. You will give an account before God. You know, Karen and I have been talking recently, and we're talking with the Theismans about this. You know, the older you get, you realize that one thing you're learning in age is how thankless you've been your whole life. Because everything you've taken for granted starts to slip away. Right? A little bit at a time. My mother's 88. Told you about her last week. She's losing her mind now. Um, everything starts to slip away. And every morning you wake up, you take it for granted. My brain is working. My heart is pumping. My, you know... My leg is working, my eyes are working, my ears are working. It's all working. You don't deserve that it should work. You just take for granted, I, I guess I deserve that it should work. No. God is consciously upholding you and giving you these things. I've realized, you know, as I look back on my life, how thankless I've been most of my life. And as I've said to you many times, it seems like all we can do is worry about the three things that aren't perfect. That's all we can do. 
We don't have time to thank God because we want to complain and whine about the three things that aren't perfect. It's, I, I'm, I'm talking to myself, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. That we would be like this. So Paul says, I'm preaching for the benefit of the church, verse 25, right? That's what he's doing. You're the same as Paul. You're supposed to be, you know, serving the body. What does that look like? I don't know what it looks like for you, right? I know what it looks like for me. I was just sharing with Dal the other evening. You know how I found out I was a preacher? Someone asked me to preach. That's how I found out. I didn't know I was a preacher. And some of you are thinking, well, you're not really that good. It doesn't matter. That's, you know, God's called me to do it. I don't have to be good. <laughs> but the, I remember, the, keenly remember the first time I preached, God was talking to me in the back of my head. He said, this is why you're on the planet. This is why I put you here. This is what I want you to do. Be my preacher. And I, on the way home from the lecture, I just wept. I, I, I realized God had called me to preach. It came out of nowhere. How did I find it? I rolled up my sleeves and I went to work and I said, yeah, I'll serve the body that way. I'm sure it'll be terrible, but I'll serve the body. You don't know what your gift is? Just go to work. Find something to do and do it. You'll find your gift. Paul says it is a stewardship. What is a steward? Someone who manages another's property and finances and affairs. So God has given you physical, spiritual gifts, talents, money, wealth, mental, physical capacities that we hold as stewards. You guys know the, the great parables of the minas and uh, the talents. That's Luke 19 and Matthew 25. God gives out the endowments and the gifts. And then he says, I love this, Luke 19, 13, go do business with this. You're here to do business. Some of you may get rich. Some of you may have a perfect marriage. Some of you may have perfect kids. That's a side issue. God may graciously give you these things. That's a side issue. You're here to be His steward, right? You're here to be His steward. I hate this therapeutic view of Christianity, right? That God is utilitarian. He's here to make you happy. It's garbage. He will make you happy. Only as you surrender to Him fully, utterly, totally, completely. You will find joy in your heart in doing it. But it's like most people have that turned on its head. So the, the, the Apostle Paul was dead earnest about his stewardship before God. It was the whole of his life. He was pointing at the Bema seat, right? We've been talking about that some the last few weeks. So I just ask you, are you serious about your stewardship before God? God has saved you and he has said to you, Luke 19, 13. I think it's the parable of the Minas. Go do business. And you will give an accounting. Okay? So go home and think about it tonight. Go home and think about the business you're doing with all that God has given you. Go home and think about it. Go home and pray about it. Maybe you should think about it for two days. Oh, maybe for three days. Maybe more. 
What has God called you to be here? You know, if you're on the same scale as Jeff Bezos, I mean, if that's, you know, you just want to be, you know, the guy, the rich guy. It will not go well for you on the last day. So Paul talks about this mystery. Paul talks about this mystery in verse 26. What is it? <clears throat> it's simply something that has not been heretofore disclosed, as I, as I referred to, I think. Um, it, it's not something that, that uh, is hard to discern or interpret. It's just simply that, that these things weren't <clears throat> disclosed in an earlier time. I told you last week or the week before last about my seminary professor who... Uh, who uh, decided to forego a lucrative job um, in the computer industry because he wanted to teach theology. Now, okay, this is a perfect example, right? <laughs> he could have made a ton of money. The guy was, I think he's the smartest man I ever met, maybe except for Rohan. But <clears throat> anyway, I love this guy because he, he pushed all of that stuff that everybody thinks they want to the side. And he said, I want to teach young men theology, right? The other thing I loved about him, and I've shared this with you, is that he always loved to say, I don't know. You know, we talk about deep things about God. And the one thing I always remembered about him was he'd always say, I don't know, man. And then we would get on our face and worship, right? We worship God. There's, there's so much we don't know. You know, love the, love the mystery. Love the mystery. But Paul's talking about... The fact that, you know, many of the things that are revealed in the New Testament simply are not revealed in the Old Testament. So that's, that's what's, being, what's being said there. Moses says the secret things belong to the Lord. We, we always, obviously, as Bible, Bible readers, being, being biblically literate, we understand there are mysteries. There definitely are mysteries. And we love the mystery, but Paul is talking about something that's simply been hidden in the past. Colossians 1, 26 and 27, Paul references saints. We've talked about this many times. A saint is not some super duper Catholic Christian. A saint is simply a true born again believer. That is a saint. That's how the Bible talks about the saints. That's what he means. So what is this mystery of God? Um, that has been made known to the people. Verse 27, Christ is in you. <laughs> this is another thing about Christianity. It's like, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And you can't discern any, like, Real passion and love and commitment and zeal for Christ in the life. You don't see it in the life. You can't perceive it in the life. You can be wrong, obviously. But Christ is in you, he says. Oh, you want to be worth $131 billion? That's nothing. Your father owns the cosmos. 
You're interested in making your first million? That's chump change. It's nothing compared to Christ is in you. And my point is this. We say we believe these things, but they, these things don't change the way we live. Which means what? We don't really believe them. Right? We don't really believe them. Because if we really believed them, it would change how I work, how I live. In the morning, when I roll out of bed, Paul is saying, God is your treasure. God is your treasure, right? God is your treasure. And again, I've been saying this all along in, the, in these messages from Colossians that you can see it between the lines here. Paul's saying, what? You, you, what? You're going to add religion to Christ? You're going to add religion to the fact that Christ is in you? You're adding say, uh, sacraments and, and ordinances and you're, you're, you're adding, you know, uh, mysticism and asceticism and legalism. You're going to add that to Christ is in you? It's, it's, it's laughable. It's completely laughable if you actually believe. Now, you know, if you don't actually believe that Christ is in you, then you need some religion. You know, religion makes you feel, religion will make you feel comfortable with yourself, possibly, and your own need to feel self-righteous, right? But if Christ is really in you, you don't need to feel self-righteous. <laughs> he is your righteousness, right? I mean, these are huge passages, beloved. I'm just trying to help you think deeply about them. God in us. You know Romans 8. We are co-heirs. I'm going to read to you famous American theologian. He's dead now. 20th century American theologian, Donald Barnhouse. You know where, you know where the, the Spirit says we, we are co-heirs with Christ. I just want to read you three or four lines what he says about that, that text. He says, we are being informed that everything that God the Father has given to the Lord, Jesus Christ, has by extension been given to us also. Now, okay, I know you got problems, but like, okay, did you hear it? <laughs> You're co-heir with Christ. Listen to what he says. If we read the word of God to discover all that God has planned for Christ, we shall discover that there's not one promise that does not in some way extend to or benefit you as the believer. And all you can do is worry about the one thing or the two things or the three things. You're going to spend most of your waking time worrying about these things instead of just rejoicing in God. Yeah, this stuff's, this stuff's a nuisance and I'm going to have to deal with it. But you know what? God's God and Christ is in me. I mean, come on. You, you talk about perspective, man. <laughs> talk about Perspective. And God has freely given what no man would rightly ask for. What man in his right mind would have ever said, I want to be indwelt by the third member of the Trinity? If God hadn't told us about this, what, what man would have ever thought of that? You know, I want to be chosen by the Father. I want to be atoned for by the Son. I want to be uh, regenerated by the Spirit. That's what I want, God. Who would have ever asked for it? No thinking man would have ever asked God for that. God just gives that. And it's small. Can't be small, beloved. 
It can't be small. Jeff Bezos is worth $131 billion. He is a pauper compared to you. If you are in Christ tonight. Verse 28-29, Paul says, man, I got the best job in the world. I tell people about Jesus. It's just like your job, right? That's your job. That's your job. You know that's your job. What, what's the Great Commission? Go and what? Make disciples what? Teaching them. That's what you do when you share the truth. You teach people. You're just like Paul. You're absolutely no different than the Apostle Paul. Paul says, I get to tell people about Jesus. Hey, so do we. <laughs> so do me. So do we. So what does it mean to admonish? It means to warn. We warn, we warn our colleagues. We warn our family. We warn our neighbors that they need a great Savior. You guys have heard it a million times probably. It kind of makes me want to gag when I hear it. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Wrong. If you're outside of Christ, the wrath of God rests on you and will land on you forever. If you don't flee to the Savior, you will spend eternity in hell. This is biblical truth. I know you don't hear it very often anymore, but that's what it is. You know, so for a man to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, it's just, it's just presumptuous. It, it's, it's presumptuous and it's ignorant of how the Bible talks. The Bible does not talk like this. You know what the gospel is? It's a proclamation of the truth. God's not begging anybody to come. He proclaims the truth, right? And you exercise your will. That's what it is. I think this is why over the years I've moved away from apologetics. I don't find apologetics effectual. I'm into proclamation, right? I'm not going to try to explain God to you. I'm just going to proclaim God to you. You exercise your will. That's on you. Okay? If you reject God, that's on you before God. If you receive God, that's, yeah, that's what you must do. That's what you must do. So Paul warns and he teaches. Yes, it is the Great Commission. You know the text. First uh, Peter 3, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. Part of the problem is we don't get asked. Why do we not get asked? Because we're not living it. We're not speaking it. If you're not getting asked... Um, you might want to talk to the Lord about that. <clears throat> Verse 29, Paul says, I labor, it's the labor of my life to bring men to Jesus Christ, right? You say, well, Jim, he was an apostle. He met Jesus personally and on the road, you know, and, you know, yeah, he's a, he's a theological genius and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you have all you need, right? You have all you need to do the work God has given you. You know, the, you know the parables. One guy got five, one guy got three, one guy got one. Okay, maybe you're the, one, you're the one that got one. Maybe you're that guy. I'm that guy. I got one talent, right? God means for you to do business. God means for you to do business. So, this text raises a lot of questions. 
I hope that you are examining yourself as we talk about them. This text raises the issue of what biblical Christianity should look like, what biblical stewardship should look like, what being rich toward God should look like. Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett are paupers compared to the Apostle Paul. Paul got the whole being rich toward God thing. He understood about unfailing treasure in heaven. He understood about stewardship. He believed and acted on the promises of God. He was pointing at that well done, good and faithful servant. I think I want to close like this. I think I'm going to open to Matthew 25. You can go with me. I prefer that you go with me if you can. Matthew 25, and this is how I want to close. I'm just going to read, uh, I'm going to begin at verse 14. I'm going to read the parable of the talents to you, okay? And this is how we'll close. Jesus says, these are the red words, for it is just like a man, uh, the it, that means the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. This is you, right? This is me. Jesus is gone. He's left us with, you know, his possessions. Everything's his. Verse 15, and to one he gave five, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Jesus is gone. Verse 16, immediately the one who had received the five went and traded with them, and he gained five more in the same manner. The guy who had two, he gained two more. But, when, but, but he who received the one, I'm in verse 18, went away and dug in the ground, and he hid the master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of the slaves came and he settled accounts. Okay, we're going we're gonna to settle accounts with God, right? Verse 20. And the one who had received five, he came up and he said, Hey, master, I received five more. See what your talents have, have gained. And verse 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. Beloved, this is what we need to be pointing at. You know, if you've never studied this deeply and thought about this deeply and prayed through this deeply, I exhort you. First, I rebuke you as your pastor lovingly rebuke you. Every pastor who loves his people will rebuke his people. I lovingly rebuke you. And I say, stop wasting time. Get on board with what Jesus has to say. Right? Because this is what it means. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. Verse 22, the one who had received the two talents, he, he, made two as, he made two as well. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master, right? One guy had more talent. He used it. Guy had lesser talent, but he used it to the max. It's not about how much you get. It's about how you use it. I'm not John Piper. I'm not John MacArthur. I'm not R.C. Sproul. I'm Jim Albright. And I preach to 20 people. Right? Very unimpressive. Except to God. Listen, I don't care how small your venue is and how small your orbit is. You be faithful. God is impressed <laughs> with your stewardship. Say, so, well, I'm just a mom. 
Oh, do you want to know the most important job in the world? Being a mom and dad. Being a godly mom and dad. It's a stewardship, beloved. Let's finish. We're out of here. What about the guy who put it in the ground? The guy says, hey, man, he backhandedly blasphemes God. He says, I know you, you are a hard man, verse 24. I was afraid, verse 25, so I just buried it in the ground. Verse 26, God says, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Verse 27, then you ought to have at least put my money in the bank and I would have gotten my interest. Verse 28, therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the guy who has... Ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have on the day of judgment shall be taken away. Verse 30. And cast this wicked slave into outer darkness in that place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Beloved, this is all big stuff, right? I've got to stop. It's all big stuff. If you have any questions about it, let me know. The, the parables of the minas and the talents are worth your time. They're worth your time. If you have any questions about what we've talked about tonight. And let me, let me give you a, a warning about next week. I, I preach on giving once a year. It's a commitment I make to God. I don't particularly like it. Um, but I know it's important for you. You need to know how to invest in the kingdom of God. You need to know how to do it. And you need to know why you should do it. And you need to know what God says about it. So the, the warning is this. If you don't want to know how to invest in the kingdom of God and you don't care, don't come next week. Okay? Because that's what we're going to talk about. Don't come next week. If you don't want to hear about what you need to do with your money with respect to God. He doesn't need it. That's a joke. He doesn't need your money. But he has a lot to say about it. So we'll talk about that next week. I just wanted to forewarn you. If you don't want to know anything about investing in the kingdom, don't come. Because we're going to talk about investing in the kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We praise you. What a great text. What a great text. We are co-heirs. <laughs> Bezos is a pauper. Gates is a pauper. Buffett is a pauper. Christ is in us. It's amazing. It's astonishing. Forgive us, Father, if we handle these things carelessly and cavalierly. Forgive us if they don't drive us and motivate us and change us and direct us. Help us, Lord, we pray. We are all weak and frail. You know our frame. Help us, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I will... Uh...